Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. There will be no more personal statements today. Let the House leave in peace and quiet. Francine Lacroix in the London studio. And I'm David Merritt, also in the London studio. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories at the heart of the City of London. And yet again, we've had to rip up our plans this week because the only thing anyone's talking about in London is the turmoil at Westminster. Rishi Sunak has resigned. The oh Chancellor has resigned. That is it. That's it. No, Both, that is, it's over. That's it. This is the end of Boris Johnson's government. Good evening from a Downing Street in Meltdown. PM under pressure and a cabinet revolt. We've had 24 hours of ministerial resignations. The whole cabinet's been upended. No one knows what's happening next. So we're calling it the disintegration of number 10. It could be slow. It could be very fast. So clearly wide sweeping change through Downing Street and the Treasury. Dave, let's talk about what's going on with Alex Wickham. He's our Westminster reporter, one of the best sourced reporters in the corridors of power. Alex, I mean, first, what is going on? Can the prime minister survive this? That's the real question now. And as you say, the government is disintegrating. It's falling apart. It, it does really feel like, as we've been up this hill before, but it feels like this really is the end game. I've always been very sceptical. Will they ever get rid of Boris Johnson as prime minister? It's so hard to remove a Tory leader, remove a prime minister in this country. But it does feel like this is getting close to being the moment where, where you know, this government can't, can't go on. When you're talking to MPs and to ministers, what finally changed their mind? We've had so much scandal, so many um, moments when we've said a normal prime minister would have lost his job and it didn't happen. What is it about this latest twist with the Chris Pincher development? Why did that finally break all of those different camel's backs? It's really interesting. I mean, the Chris Pincher development, as, as shocking as it is, a, a serious, very serious allegation against him. This is not the first time this sort of allegation has been made against a politician in Westminster. It's not the first time it's been handled badly by a political party. This sort of thing happens all the time. What made this the one that pushed, pushed all the Tory MPs over the edge? Well, I think it's the fact that when Boris Johnson survived that confidence vote on Partygate, the deal that he basically, the unspoken deal that he had with the party then was okay, I've, I've messed up a lot here. I've messed up really badly on Partygate. I promise you, I will try my best to do some good government, no more scandals. You know, let's see how we go for the for the next year and, and see if I can prove myself and, and hold things together. Well, it's been a few weeks since then and another scandal with bad, very badly handled has blown up and the cabinet tour, Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid and Tory MPs have said they've had enough. I think, Dave, I mean, I guess as a politician, you would calculate at what point does this man become too toxic, right, for the next general election? And maybe it's a tipping point and you say, well, he's messed us up before. We don't trust him. But now he's actually also toxic to, to the British voter. Right. And there's a, there's a bit of a sense of a kind of the tide or the dam bursting, isn't there? But and that key yeah. moment when the Chancellor Rishi Sunak and the Health Secretary Sajid Javid Presumably, Alex, in cahoots, they must have been planning this. They put out their resignation letters at the same time. Two loyalists. Two loyalists previously. Give us a bit of the sense of what was going on in the background. I think this was in the last few days over the weekend. Um, 
either together or separately. We don't really know. They claim not in cahoots. I don't know if anyone really believes that, but it, but supposedly... A bit of a coincidence, right? It, it, you know, 10 minutes apart on Twitter? It? It, it is a bit of a coincidence. Um, you know, they've they've decided that, that they can't go on and this is the moment, basically, to, to act. And, you know, Rishi Sunak has, let's be honest, he's been umming, umming and ahhing about whether to yeah. do this for months. He, he probably would have resigned and tried to bring down Boris Johnson during Partygate if he hadn't received a, a Partygate fine himself. So he, he almost missed the boat then. They've decided that, um, that Tuesday night was the night to do it. And, you know... <laughs> But Nadim Zahawi, why? What would motivate when Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid have walked out of the cabinet? What would motivate uh, Nadim Zahawi to think he can make this work as Chancellor and, and stick with Boris Johnson? The Nadim Zahawi dynamic is absolutely fascinating and, and possibly throwing things forward the most important uh, factor in all of this. There's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, has he tied himself to Boris Johnson? Has he made himself seem like a Boris Johnson loyalist who will be in the trenches until the end, tainting himself for any future leadership contest and having all the you know, anti-Boris rebels against him at that point, ruining his chances of being leader? Possibly. However, what I am probably would lean towards is the fact that Zahawi has now placed himself among a field of potential alternative Tory leaders where, let's be honest, there hasn't been a, an obvious choice. There hasn't been an obvious contender. Otherwise, they would have come forward by now and, and Johnson probably would have been out a while ago. Zahawi has now pushed himself to the front of that queue. He is now the most senior person other than the BM in the government. He has, well, he'll either have hours, days or weeks, depend, depending on it, uh, to, to you know make a name for himself as, as Chancellor, perhaps talk about cutting taxes, things like that. But he does get to sort of say, look, I was both loyal to my party. I tried to hold things together. I tried to do the best. But also I recognise obviously things aren't going, haven't gone very well. But as Chancellor, I'm the, I'm the sort of respected senior figure who can, who can get the party back together. And he will absolutely, in the, in the days, weeks, months ahead, if there is a Tory leadership contest, he will be right up there as a, as a top contender. Alex, what can you tell us about who would actually support the, the current Chancellor as Prime Minister? Like, are there, are there two factions in West? I imagine there's like 22 factions, but who would get, you know, the most support? I think there would be some some Boris Johnson loyalists who would, would back Nadim Zahawi. I think he's generally a, a well-liked person across the Tory party. He, certainly in the cabinet, perhaps not a very high bar at the moment, but he generally has the respect of, of the party. He's got a fantastic backstory as a sort of, you know, came to the country as a refugee from Iraq and made it as a self-made uh, businessman. I think Zahari would get support from a broad a broad range of people across the across the Conservative Party, from, from the right and the centre of the party. That question, though, of whether he gets tainted over the, over the coming hours and days is, is a tough one. Who else is there that could potentially be the next Tory leader? I think we've seen... Penny Mordaunt? Penny, Penny Mordaunt, yes, absolutely. She will run for it. Um, she is quite a controversial figure in the Tory party. She's well-liked by by lots of people uh, on the centre of the party, but there are lots of people, uh, certainly the the sort of Johnson loyalists and and, the, and some of the some of, some of that wing of the party not a fan. Um, you've got uh, Sajid Javid who who gave a, made a personal statement to the House Commons on, on Wednesday, really quite uh, brutally dismantling uh, uh, Boris Johnson's administration. And you know you would imagine that he fancies himself, um, and that's one of the reasons why he felt he can no longer continue in government. Rishi Sunak himself might might think you know maybe maybe I'm I'm not finished uh, by the by the Partygate fine and, and the non-dom stuff. Maybe he could have a go, um, all the way through to Ben Wallace, who's had a, a very pretty good uh, Ukraine crisis as things go. Um, 
I mean, the list never ends, to be honest. It is really a, a, a wide field. Jeremy Hunt on, uh, from the sort of centre of the party, although you would perhaps wonder whether he could unite the party and the, you know, get, get the support of the right wing. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be a, a very wide uh, range of, of candidates. But, um, but yeah, not, not an obvious one. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on your first week at Bloomberg as well. Joining us on In the City, we'll hope you'll come back uh, very often. <laughs> Nothing like a good crisis on the first week in the job. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so to dive uh, more into the political turmoil now, we're joined by Senior Executive Editor for Economics and Government, Stephanie Flanders, and Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, Marcus Ashworth. Um, Stephanie, maybe we could start with you. Alex has just been telling us about the turmoil going on behind the scenes in Westminster. We don't know where this is going to be landing by the time people listen to this podcast because it's moving so fast. But what we do know is that everything's going to be different, isn't it, from now on in? And what is going to be the impact for the economy as a whole? It's a very difficult moment for the British economy. And all of this turmoil at the top surely isn't going to help. No, I think that's right. I mean, as usual, we get we get the sort of the psychodrama of the politics. And then there's always a question about what the read across is for the economy. But given that the economy was already in um, pretty challenging uh, circumstances, I think the main thing that you would look to out of this, if you were just looking at the sort of narrow economic consequences, is whether or not this this new chancellor, uh, Zadim Sadawi, um, manages to change the fiscal weather in any way you know there appears to be some there has been some ongoing dispute at least if you read the uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, resignation letter between him and the and the prime minister a difference of philosophy in their response to this current economic situation um you know there may or may not be an extreme difference but it certainly seems to be in the direction of wanting more support for households uh, from the cost of living squeeze and more uh, tax cuts so obviously if that happened you'd have a sort of Looser fiscal policy at the margin, maybe slightly faster growth. We've run some numbers to suggest maybe, you know, if you had another size package similar to what uh, the Chancellor did a few months ago, or sort of, you know, 20 billion or so uh, support for households, you know, that could marginally increase growth and marginally add to the inflation rate. Um, but it's not going to fundamentally change uh, the challenges that the economy is facing, because this is just these are difficult circumstances for a country like the UK that's very open to what's happening in the global economy. Well, let's bring our optimist, our resident optimist in the newsroom and in the wider Bloomberg world. He's Marcus Ashworth. And Marcus, you wrote this brilliant piece basically saying, look, Boris Johnson's in trouble, but the UK economy is OK. And then when you speak to a lot of analysts, they say, oh, I'm so glad I don't need to be in charge of the UK economy because inflation is much higher than the rest of the world. The labor market is so tight and we're looking at stagflation. Well, I'm glad you said it's a brilliant piece. I don't know what you're saying beforehand, but never mind. Uh, it's um, it's just trying to put a level of uh, clarity in what I think is the underlying state of the economy. In the sense, we've had so much stimulus in there. Uh, the labour market is very strong. I'm not quite sure why having a tight labour market is bad for the economy, but in the context, it's it's missing out on potential. But it's certainly, I think, supporting. Uh, you know, dare I say the word households? Uh, in the sense, it's better to be in a job than not in one. So. Um, and I don't think inflation is necessarily worse in this country than it is in other parts of the world, particularly in parts of Europe. So, and it will come down as it will elsewhere. I, I view the problem broadly 
uh, as pretty much everyone's in the same boat inflation wise and and the semantics of who's worse or, or better is is not really helpful in this context so I wouldn't say I'm an optimist. Uh, I can see all the bad things that everyone else can see. I'm just less pessimistic about the ability for the economy to recover. Uh, and I think the government will do a lot more than uh, Stephanie suggested is is just a repeat of what uh, Rishi did, because I don't think that's enough. It wasn't enough at the same at the, at the time. And, it, and I think uh, Boris will be pushing for, for far more. Um, but, you know, that will have effect on, on inflation because, you know, chucking government spending in is, is going to make potentially inflation that bit harder to get down but that may just come down of its own accord next year or, or late this year so whether it's Zahari in in the treasury or down the line as alex was talking about possibly in number 10 himself sounds like you're saying marcus we can expect a big fiscal stimulus not for something marginal that stephanie was talking about and that the government have got the wiggle room to do that Oh, I think they've definitely got the wiggle room. I mean, th- there's a massive guilt redemption coming up in July, uh, 26 odd billion coming in net into the market. Only 3 billion of that's out the Bank of England's thing. But there's big money coming into the guilt market, which is very short of supply. You can issue a lot more gilts here and the market would take it up. And I think that the there is no point, if there's any point anyway, but if this government is going to survive in any shape, form or context, it's going to have to really radically change. And I think they'll have to go quite big. And that enables the Bank of England to do a lot more with regards to its uh, freedom to, to raise interest rates. And that, in some senses, longer term, is, is actually quite a good thing for the, the UK economy. I mean, price pressures are building up, right? Wholesale prices up the most since 1977. If you look at, of course, this UK inflation, at this new 40-year high. Stephanie, do you agree the, the UK economy you think is okay? Look, I think it's, there's different things, right? I, th- I do think uh, it's right to say, I think the inflation is looks a little bit broader than in the Eurozone, but I think it's true to say that you don't see, we haven't seen a big impact on inflation expectations, which is obviously the game that all these central bankers are playing, you know, is how long does inflation need to stick around for people to think they're in a new regime? It's not clear that we've got to that uh, point. I do think that the squeeze on households from the cost of living and the energy price rises and everything is going to do a lot of the Bank of England's work. And I would defend the bank a little bit and with all the talk about it being behind the curve and everything else. So I, I agree with Marcus on that. I think the problem is, if you talk about some massive change, um, you know, what is that going to do? What, what can the government realistically do in the way of spending that's actually going to change the medium term trajectory? So you could throw more money at households and that might be politically um, successful. Uh, you still have a question, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're paying more money to teachers, there is still this question, you know, are you actually going to have fewer teachers or are you going to really increase education spending? I don't think they've grappled with that. But if you look, the fundamental problem the UK's had over the last 10 years, 15 years, has been growth and productivity and also household income growth. So household income has been income growth has been slower than almost every European country, most OECD countries. And since 2006 or seven, we had a recent excellent report from the Resolution Foundation on that last week. Um, productivity growth, as we know, has fallen off a cliff since the global financial crisis. Rishi Sunak, you know, with his, despite imposing very big cuts on corporation tax coming down the track for companies, was also trying to radically gear the corporation tax system, the taxation of UK companies in the direction of investment. So you really wouldn't have to pay these higher corporation tax rates if you invested a lot. If you're going to reverse that, which does always seems to be moving in the direction of, well, how are you going to encourage investment? Because investment has been the absolute um, weak point in the UK the last few years. 
I'm not so sure, unless I'm wrong, that he's necessarily going to reverse the investment incentives. In fact, I'm almost certain they're going to have to continue. It's whether or not he reverses the potential corporate. But that's thirty billion. How is he going to pay? For, I mean, over time, you don't think that that you think you could just lose that those extra tax revenues that were were built into the fiscal forecast for the next few years, and all will be well. Oh, I mean, the whole point here is is that it depends which which idea you look at. It. If you cut taxes, you you in turn encourage growth and the entrepreneurial animal spirits, etc. It's a gamble, and uh, and whether or not the, the the fiscal balance can be maintained or or fudged, I think they'll go fudging it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just think that's what they're going to do here. And I think at the same time, measuring productivity is we have a real problem with our statistics in this country. And I don't think we understand productivity and how to measure it in a service economy quite in the same way as it's it's easier perhaps sometimes to measure it in a, in a more stable manufacturing economy. So I, I hear what you're saying. And I think there's a lot of things that could be done. Uh, and we certainly are going to resolve many problems, if any, in, under this current government strategy. But we do have to you know, expect more boost to the economy. Should they worry about Sterling's 10% decline and the fact that it's making the cost of living crisis even worse? I bet Marcus is going to say we shouldn't. I mean, look, I think it's we we worry compared to other countries. We rem- we worry remarkably little about the value of our currency, and the Bank of England, in particular, is one of the central banks that's probably least concerned with what you might call debauching the currency um, than any than any central bank in the world. So, you know, why should another ten percent stop us? I mean, uh, really, arguably, when you talk about what structural changes might have needed to happen post Brexit, if we're you know needing to address the change in our terms of trade with the rest of the world, um, you might we might well need even more depreciation to um, be more competitive in the world. I just think that the value of sterling is something that at least the Bank of England appreciates. It has no ability realistically to control. And they don't even bother because, you know, we can see that the majority of the weakness of sterling is coming from the strength of the dollar as it's mirrored across the world. Uh, there's some unique British <laughs> uh, problems which are causing some excessive weakness at the moment. Sterling is undervalued, as the euro is undervalued. At some point, it will correct. Probably, uh, we will almost certainly see more weakness before that, though. Does it matter? Yes, of course it does. Uh, and I, I get the point about debauchery, <laughs> um, but I just don't think the Bank of England is capable of doing anything to correct it, and at least they don't bother. Stephanie, why will no one answer me how, how much of this, you know, economic concerns are to do with Brexit? Is it just difficult to entangle them from the energy shock? I mean, it's, it's hugely difficult. I think if, if we hadn't had all the dramatic things happening in the economy, not to mention COVID over the last few years, we would have probably noticed what seems to have been a sort of few percentage points on the price level, which we would have anticipated from from Brexit. Um, you know, in the in the previous uh, low inflation era, that would have been quite visible. Uh, now it's kind of lost in the mix of this double digit inflation that, that we're heading to. I think it's also very hard um, when you look at things like the impact of uh, more red tape and uh, all of the things that companies are doing. The fact that lots of small businesses have just stopped exporting um, it's hard to sort of the absence of something is quite hard to capture in the data, even though, of course, we're see, or we are seeing weak exports uh, much weaker, uh, even sharper decline than we might have expected. So you know, I think there's also a sort of it comes to a point where, you know, in 10 or 20 years time, are we still going to be associating all of these things with Brexit or are we just going to say it's about what economy we are? You know, for the last 30 years, we've just blamed the fact that we weren't very competitive for having a terrible trade deficit. And I suspect we could, you know, we can go through all the reasons why we're not very competitive, but it's probably going to be counterproductive. 
Marcus is wildly gesticulating or gesticulating wildly where you are. I don't know whether you want in on the conversation on Brexit or whether you or whether you want to stay away from it. So I probably ought to stay away from it. I mean, I, I the counterfactuals are always, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. I, and I don't know. I, I, I find it hard to to find a positive is the only thing I could say with regarding to, to Brexit. So uh, let's leave it at that, whether it's a negative or not, or the extent of that negative i i think you know stephanie's right it's it's almost impossible to know it will it'll blur in the sands of time um but you know the other counterfactual which no one really ever mentions is, is that you know going through the pandemic we would have had to have been putting in an awful lot of money into the next generation fund of the eu and subsidizing a lot of european spending which probably therefore we wouldn't have allowed to happen therefore it would have been the worst of both worlds so uh both for europe and and for us so there are other ways of looking at uh, at how the, the future trend of it just really requires a better relationship from both sides, and I mean it's quite importantly, both sides have got to grow up about trade with each other. Actually, I should just say there is an official. I mean, the Office for Budget Responsibility still is standing by its estimate, which I think is in the. I'm forgetting that, but it's around four percent of GDP. Have they ever got any cost. estimate right? No, but they're saying <laughs> as of now that they think that has panned out, that it has so far been four to five percentage four sub five percent of GDP. So um you know there 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 are people who are you know they're they're, they're the official forecasters and and, and yeah. assessors of these things and they've still got a number. Thank you so much to Marcus Ashworth and to Stephanie Flanders. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacquan. That's it for this week's episode of In The City. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, if you like the show, please rate it and check out the Bloomberg UK website for more news and views. Special thanks to our guests, Alex Wickham, Stephanie Flanders and Marcus Ashworth. This episode was produced by Samasadi. Sadi.